and welcome to the Overtime Leader Podcast, where we interview experts and managers on their experiences and lessons in leadership. I'm your host, Jillian Davis, founder of Overtime and author of First Time Leader. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Where we'll be talking to Karen Walker, an executive consultant and advisor who's going to be digging into her upcoming book, No Dumbing Down. So Karen, I am really keen to get into your new book, but I thought it would be smart to give the listeners a little bit of context as to how you got to get to where you are now. Oh, yeah. It's a wonderful place to start because the the book, of course, can only come from the author. So I'm actually an engineer by degree. I come to this work very differently from many people who do what I do for a living. And I was fortunate very early in my life, in my career, to be able to start work at a brand new startup that hadn't shipped any products yet and that was a little mysterious, actually, in terms of what they were doing. And I was working at a large company at that time, and I started seeing the people I really admired uh, leaving the company and going to this new place. Uh, and so I interviewed, and uh, it turned out to be Compact Computer, which at that time had about 100 employees and hadn't shipped any products left. And by the time I left 14 years later, I I had grown an organization for, in terms of my work, running all the physical infrastructure from one person to, I don't know, I think I had about 300 employees and thousands of contractors and consultants worldwide. And uh, the company itself, um, I was part of the senior leadership team that had grown us from, from no revenue to about $15 billion by the time I left in about 17,000 employees. So I was part of a big growth story. And uh, while I was in it, it wasn't always so easy to see what the big lessons were. But subsequently, after I left and uh, had a little bit of a, a sabbatical of my own, uh, I went into consulting work uh, with my now husband, who's a PhD psychologist. And uh, we work with senior leaders at mostly tech companies, but all companies who are based on growth, uh, to help them really be clear about what they're working on and why and how to go about executing that. And of course, that all comes down to processes, tools, and behaviors. But it, you know, it's based on helping them give form to the vision that they have, because there are lessons learned along the way, both in terms of Compact and in terms of my consulting, that have led me both to the book and to the work that I do today. I can't imagine the stories you, you have to tell from that experience at Compact and, and what a, a great and fascinating background and, and gives you so much context into what so many people are experiencing today. Exactly. So there were certainly lots of lessons learned both about things that worked and things that didn't work. And as your listeners will know, uh, those that are in growth industries and growth organizations, uh, growth can, can cover a lot of ills, but it's important along the way to, to understand you know, what it is that you're doing that's working really well and what those things are that need, need your attention to be changed. And so those are the kinds of things that I work now with my consulting clients on, uh, making sure we get ahead of those things that are likely to trip them up and then paying attention to those that come along that do. And what are some of those themes that you see tripping, tripping people up who are in those growth industries? Yeah, so there are five sort of general areas that I have found that are sort of most impactful to focus on. There are certainly, you know, a plethora of things you could choose from, but these are the five in my experience that have made the most difference uh, and the quickest difference to my clients. And the first is really focusing from an organization standpoint on making sure that, that people are not dumbing down, right, to the title of the book. Um, and that really has to do with teams that aren't working to their full potential, because there are internal forces in your organization that cause them to dumb down their output. And so that's just, you know, that's potential, that's performance, that's profit left on the table. 
Secondly, is um, all about sort of processes and tools, and behaviors that I mentioned earlier that are get stuck in the status quo, and so you you're not able to to be as agile as you need to be and responsive in order to keep up with all the changes going on around you. Then, really, people's inability to handle unexpected events because we know that things change and they change quickly. And while we can be really good at planning and forecasting, stuff happens. And if you don't have uh, processes and abilities. Um, you can really careen off in different directions, and those will undermine your strategies. I call that playing bumper cars. And then um, lastly, sort of this emphasis on the short-term and the urgent, because there's never a shortage of those things, but letting that uh, get in the way and uh, emphasizing that at the expense of the longer view um, and really um, helping both determine and uh, put in place scalable, replicable processes that will enable you to be successful in the long term. That's really interesting, and, and I think we probably hear and witness a lot of the same uh, behaviors and roadblocks. One of the things that I've picked up, especially in startup companies, is a perception that putting process in place will actually stagnate growth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You had to have that, have that conversation before. Absolutely. And uh, I would agree that in uh, many instances, putting processes in place can stagnate growth. And so what I focus on is um, something I call the SOP continuum. (laughs) So uh, if you think about a a continuum with a seat of the pants on one end of the continuum, that SOP, and standard operating process on the other end of the continuum, right? What you want is an organization that's able to pick the right place on the continuum to respond to the situation that's there. So, for example, uh, many young companies think that they need to do everything on the startup end of this continuum, and that's great. The problem is when you stay on that end, when you have everything done seat of the pants, you have to you have to reinvent the wheel every time you do something. And in order to grow, you have to have parts of your business that are replicable, and those are the areas where you must put in process. Um, and so, I often think about it. Is you know sort of what's the frequency of a problem, and it's going to happen only once. You do not need a process for it. You just need to deal with it. Um, if it's going to happen occasionally, think about it. Uh, but if it's something that happens often, that takes your time and attention, put a process in place for it. That doesn't mean that you can't ever make an exception to a process, right? Put a smart process in place. Uh, but but if you're going to scale and grow, you have to be able to put your attention on the things that are important and to solve problems um, as they occur. And if they're occurring frequently, you don't, need to, you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time it comes up. That's a really great principle. And, and I think I've seen um, it often happen where someone will come into a fast-growing new business and bring in process from an existing traditional one because the, you know that worked for that company. It worked for them, right. Yeah. And actually, you know, I love that. Like if you, if it's something that comes up a lot, put a process in place, but if it's a one-time occurrence or here and there, don't bother putting the effort. Right. Yeah. I mean, definitely startups know that as, uh, sorry, definitely startups know as they grow that um, there are areas they will need bigger, better processes for, right? Those often occur in the areas of sort of finance and administration. So those you can at least put processes in early enough that will support the bigger processes you need later. Um, But, but just to your point, I, I have two stories that I, I think are sort of interesting around this. One is the um, at Compaq as we were growing, right? And one of the one of the things startups love to tell are these stories where every you know, we had sort of to get all hands on deck to do shipping at the end of the quarter or something, right? Or to, to sort of get the ball over the line. But even a big company like UPS, 
around the holiday season every year, in particularly heavy years, they will get all hands on deck, even at the size company that they are, to deliver products. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal recently about how they, they had their accountants out delivering packages in the last holiday season. And that was a, a startup response at a grown-up company. So I think for any any size company, you, you can you can choose the right place on the continuum to, to solve the problem at hand. Yeah, not get too stuck in in any way, right? Neither one. It's exactly. One. It's not a one way. And since you are able to kind of look at both sides, you work with large companies and, and also up-and-coming startups, what are some of the similarities and also the differences in, in those two kind of worlds? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I think that, you know, we have, I, I certainly see uh, people on and organizations that are functioning well on both ends of that scale and those that can use some uh, some shoring up. The companies that I like to work with, and I think the companies that are uh, attracting A players, um, are those that have created both a good place to work and that have a strong product market fit, right? A players are going to want both of those things. Um, and people self-select into the kinds of organizations and leadership positions that, that they think they can, they can play best in. And what you want to do is create an environment where A players will want to work and will want to tell their A player friends to come to work as well. Um, and so some of those things, I believe, are having, you know, certainly a, a clear and strong vision, um, and that's necessary for every organization. But also, um, the processes in place in the organization, and by that I don't mean, you know, books of processes. I mean uh, behaviors in the organization, where the organization is constantly uh, debriefing and learning from what's going on um, so that there's continual improvement in the way that things get done, which might be as simple as, you know, how we deal with conflict, uh, but just different levels of awareness about what those issues are and making sure that they're dealt with when they get in the way of the growth of the organization and in the way of being a good place to work. So taking that time to reflect, learn, adapt, and, you know, change course if needed. Yes, and I think really successful CEO, senior leaders, and, and in my view, all employees need to sort out how they, how they will put into their lives time to think the big thoughts, right? I think about this as sort of levitating. And sometimes I will talk to a CEO and say, hey, you need to make more time to think. And they'll say, well, you know, we have our annual retreat. <laughs> well, you know, that's really not enough. Yeah. Um, you have to increase your frequency there, and uh, and you do that by by making time for it. Uh, no one in the organization is going to give you time to think rather than do, um, and so you have to put it on your calendar, and you have to make sure it's a priority for yourself. You have to ask questions, right, that and explore answers rather than just whatever's the easy thing. Uh, you have to develop your staff. You have to learn to say no to shiny new objects that come along, which is certainly a place where I get tripped up, um, <laughs> so that you can make the, high, you know, the highest and best use of your time because that's the, the one limited resource that we have uh, really at the end of the day. There are a couple of CEOs in tech companies that are sort of famous for that. One is um, uh, Mark Benioff, who's the, right, the founder of Salesforce. And, uh, you know, famously, one of the things he did when he was at Oracle was he, after 10 years, he took a sabbatical and he went to Hawaii and then he went to India and he spent a lot of time meditating. And he, he says he came back with a, a really clear vision about the future of the Internet. And I, mm -hmm. I just don't think that would have happened if he had spent that time rushing from meeting to meeting 10 or 12 hours a day. Yeah. And, and I often find myself saying, if not you, then who? Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. If you're not asking those questions as leaders, you know, it's not going to be your board doing that thinking for you. <laughs> That's right. You know, scheduling that commitment and putting it into your diary and, and being really strict about that time over other time. Right. And the, those things get rescheduled from time to time. Of course they do. But if you've got, you know, six in, six times for that in your calendar in a, in a quarter and you only end up taking five, mm -hmm. if well, then you've taken five. Um, and that's certainly directionally correct. Yeah, definitely. So I'm keen to talk a little bit more about No Dumbing Down. I absolutely love that title. <laughs> Where did that come from and what's the key message that you're sending to the, the readers? Yeah. Well, in some ways, you know, no dumbing down is a, is a rallying cry <laughs> for people, right? But it came about because as I started to work with organizations and teams and someone would say, oh, we're going to do some team building and there would be like this groan, right? <laughs> and it's because people have, have, we've all experienced this, right? Teamwork as usual. And it really hurts the organization, but, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? There are things you can do about it. But what typically happens is that you have some sort of all-hands company meeting and some facilitator will lead the group and you talk about trust and you get some t-shirts in the mug or something and people's expectations change, right? They think, oh, maybe this time we're really going to be able to do something differently. But then, you know, we get back to our team meetings and um, old patterns sort of reemerge. And you start to see some office politics coming in, or maybe somebody has a conflict doesn't get dealt with, or people can't make decisions. And so then you start seeing these misalignments internally. Uh, what happens is that your high performers in particular get fed up because we, we know that um, a team can only perform at the level of the lowest performing member. Yeah. And so when a team is trying to work in a high performing way, but all of the members aren't able to play at that level, uh, then people have to dumb down. Yeah. And the, the biggest problem with that, beyond what you're leaving on the table, right, in terms of, of productivity, is that um, your A players do not want to work in an environment where dumbing down is okay and where dumbing down is the norm. Um, and so you have to make sure that your teams are able to be high-performing teams. It's really interesting to me, one of the things that I'll do with groups is I'll ask, ask the team, so tell me about sort of the best and worst teams you've ever been on. And um, almost without fail, I've, you know, I know 90% of what they're going to say at the beginning. And so people know the difference in a good team and a bad team, uh, but they don't always know how to, how to get from one to the other. That's the part of dumbing down that we spend the most time on. Um, and so the kind of the three things, just to say briefly, that uh, I think make the most difference in terms of changing a sort of a dumbed down team into a high performance team is to recognize why it's going on and then to give people, of course, the skills uh, in order to work better together. And the reason it occurs is, is often because just of blind spots. I think about our, my days at Compaq and how when we were an actual startup, people were coming in the door because that was the kind of environment that they wanted to work in, right? This high-paced, very intense startup environment. And we made a lot of mistakes, but we talked about them and we knew what they were and we, we picked up the pieces and we moved on. But then as we hired more and more people, and, and we frankly were at the point where we were hiring hundreds more people a month than we had forecast, <laughs> not hundreds of people a month, but hundreds more than we forecast because we were growing so rapidly that we started hiring people who came to Compact for a different reason. And these people were not bad people, right? They just had a different motivation for being there. Mm -hmm. And in that case, um, we started to get sort of more politics that were coming in the door because people's interests were different. 
and over time, in my in my view, the environment began to dumb down. And I'd have even vendors tell me, you know, it used to be that I'd come in here and people were so focused and the place was so vibrant and, and sort of now I see people streaming out the door at five o'clock. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely hard. I do not cast stones here. It's hard to manage an organization with that many people in it, but you have to put in the effort. And I do think it's, it's, uh, it's definitely possible to have an organization that large um, that is still vibrant and uh, where people are able to work in their potential. And for a leadership team or a leadership team member that might be listening to this, where do they focus? Where do they start? Yeah, well, the, the first thing is to recognize the problem, right? The second thing is um, to get the team to understand that maximizing an individual effort is not the goal, right? Uh, so oftentimes when we have high performers, it's uh, they get rewarded for their high-performing individual efforts. And there must also be... Um, reward for the team effort and an understanding that if the team fails, the individual fails. So it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to, to actually put it into action. And I think the first thing is really just valuing process as well as content. So it's not enough just to get stuff done, right? Um, you have to pay attention to how it gets done. And so it's valuing some discipline process that supports um, uh, the work. I think having people who can ask for what they want in an organization and then notice what they get. Um, I think that's one of the, the great sayings I've been endowed with in my life is ask for what you want, notice what you get. Because there's really no substitute for describing your intentions to your organization if you're a leader and to your, your team if you're a team member. So to let other people on the team know what you need in order to get your job done and to ask them what they need from you. So there's absolute clarity about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then to to really pay attention to, to what's going on and to debrief, right? To, to talk about, hey, we set plans for A, we actually got B. What did we learn from that? What, if anything, do we need to do differently going next? And then rewarding these behaviors that you want, right? And that doesn't just mean giving people uh, more compensation, although that's always welcome, but recognition and trusting people and giving people responsibilities, um, so that you're, you're rewarding the behaviors that will help the team work at a higher level. And then as a leader in the organization, you absolutely have to walk the talk because if there is any variance in your behavior, people will pick it up and um, they'll assume that it's okay because you did it uh, and you'll have a hard time telling them it's not. And if, you know, I think we both know this, but the level of straight talking that is necessary and rewarded, I think a lot of people, you know, shy away from, calling out like, hey, we said A, but we got to B, what happened? Instead of it feeling like a reprimand and more focusing on a learning um, is, is super key. And it, it helps to kind of take that discomfort out of calling stuff out, but it's perfectly fine to call it. Yes. There's a, actually a, a great book out now called Radical Candor. Kim Scott is the author that uh, really makes it an elegant way about why you need to address your conflicts. Um, and that is that, uh, if, you know, use the, the case of someone you have to fire after six months and, and the person says, well, why didn't you tell me I had all these problems, you know, four months ago when I could do something about them? Uh, but we tend, we tend to give people feedback, right, at the moment of crisis and when it's gotten so much that we can't hold it anymore. But to get processes in place where the organization can just, as part of their daily conversations, talk about in a non-defensive way, here's what's going on, here's the impact of that, and here's how it is or is not getting us to our goals and what do we do about it. Yeah, exactly. And making it, like you said, it should just be a conversation instead of 
a moment. Yes. Great. Karen, this has been amazing. And I'm definitely going to pick up a copy of your book and send it to a few people that I'm working with. Oh, thank you. So the book mm-hmm. coming out in the next couple of weeks, it should potentially be out by the time this podcast is live. Um, so if I, if it is, I will definitely link it to the podcast notes. I always ask my guests if there's anything they'd like to, you know, leave the audience with, if it's something, an, an, another um, podcast, a book, or, or an article that they think would be um, a helpful resource for them in their hmm. leadership journey? Um, I think I would leave you with a thought about how to avoid the so what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because um, for, for many of us in our careers, we, we read a book or we go to a seminar or something and get pretty excited about what's possible from that. And then six weeks later, it's like, well, that was interesting, but so what? And this is, in fact, sort of how I define my success as a consultant, right? One is referrals. The other is how many people have a so what moment. And I want that number to be zero. Um, And so to find ways to sort of hold yourself accountable and to talk with your team about how the team holds itself accountable uh, for your commitments, right? And that's not to say that you have to do everything you said you're going to do because stuff changes. But you do need to to be able to, to understand what you did and didn't do and why and to have those conversations. And so to make sure that there is a discipline process in place with your team um, for accountability, I think that's one of the strongest things towards um, success uh, that an individual or a team can do. Definitely. I love that. Uh, really great to hear about your story and your upcoming book. Thanks so much for your, for your time. And uh, I'm sure I will have you on again. Looking forward to speaking with you again. And I have to end by saying, um, have a good day and no dumbing down. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Karen. All right. Take good care. Bye. Bye.